Well, this morning we're uh, pushing pause on our study in the book of Romans. We'll come back to it after study break in, in several weeks. Um, today I want to look at a, an episode in the Gospel of Mark with you. So you can turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 29 today. And that's uh, page 844. If you want to follow along in the, the Bible in the pew in front of you or on a chair near you. Um, before I, I read the passage, I just want to ask you, have you, have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Do you, do you know what I mean by that? These, uh, this time where you get, you get away from the busyness and the stress of everyday life, you disconnect from uh, so, social media, from email, uh, text messages, all of that, reconnect with God. You know, just a, a time of quiet, rest, refreshment. Um, your, your soul is, is full. You have a, just kind of a, a fresh sense of God's goodness, a fresh excitement about the gospel, about following Jesus. Um, have you ever had that kind of experience? I, I can think back to a, a short-term missions trip I took when I was 19 years old, went to Ireland and I uh, just came away from that trip so excited about gospel ministry, and in many ways that trip changed the, the trajectory of my life. Um, maybe for you it was a, a Christian summer camp or a church retreat, something along those lines. You know, those, those times on the mountaintop, they're, they're good and necessary. We need that rest. We need that refreshment. But as you know, we can't stay on the mountaintop forever, right? At some point, you have to come back down into the valley, into the real world, back to the stresses and demands of everyday life. And it's easy to follow Jesus on the mountaintop, right? It's easy when you're, you're either alone and just enjoying creation, enjoying rest, or you're with some Christian friends, and, and it's very easy to follow Jesus in a, in a time like that. But what about in the valley? What about when you, you drive down the mountain and you come back into that crazy, chaotic life that you set aside for a, a few days when you went up to the mountain? Um, what does it look like to follow Jesus in the, the busyness and stress of everyday life down here in the valley. Well, Mark shows us in this story we're going to look at this morning, this, this story, there's aspects of it that might strike us as strange, but, but it's a lesson about following Jesus. It, it's about following Jesus not only on the mountaintop, but also in the valley. And uh, real quick, before I read the passage, let me just give you some context. Right before this episode, Jesus takes three of his disciples with him, up onto the mountain, and, and those disciples get a glimpse of just uh, Jesus' divine glory. It's an amazing moment, the transfiguration of Christ. And for a few moments, it's like the, the veil of ordinariness was pulled away, and the, and the disciples witness the, the beauty and the wonder and the splendor of who Jesus is as the divine Son. And you might remember Peter was one of those three disciples, and he wanted to, to set up a tent and, and hang out on the mountaintop, and, and Jesus said, no, it's not time for that. And so he takes his these three disciples back down the mountain, down into the valley, and that's where we pick up uh, the story. That's where our reading picks up. So let me uh, read for us Mark chapter 9 
verses 14 to 29. Again, that's page 844 if you want to follow along there. And when they came to the disciples, that is when Jesus and the three who were on the mountain came to the the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, as we come to your word today, we know it was written for our instruction, for our benefit. And so we pray that you would open our eyes and ears to receive what you have for us in your word today. Help us to see our Savior and to understand what it means to follow him. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to walk through the story with you first and then draw out a a few applications. And this story, this episode, unfolds in four scenes. In this first scene, it's about faithless failure. Um, Picking up the story in in verse 14, again, Jesus and three of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, come down from the mountain, down from that experience of glory, and as they come back into uh, the real world, what do they see? Well, they see chaos. They, they come upon a scene of, of conflict and, and suffering, and they find the other nine disciples, the ones who stayed behind, they're in an argument with the scribes, that is, the, the experts in the Mosaic Law, And they're surrounded by a a crowd of onlookers, uh, Mark tells us. And so you can, you can imagine this scene. There's, there's accusations flying back and forth. People are, are kind of jostling and pressing in, trying to get closer to the action to see what's going on. It's, it's chaotic. And so Jesus steps in and, and he asks, what, what are you arguing about? And at this point, verse 17, a a man steps forward. A man from the crowd comes forward, and he tells Jesus about his son. He says there, Teacher, I brought my son to you, 
For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so the, the father um, you know, explains what's going on, and, and clearly this boy is suffering. I mean, he's, in, he's in bad shape. He, he can't speak, so he's cut off from the world of, of human communication. Not only that, he experiences violent seizures that just take over his whole body. And, and we, as, as modern people, we read about this, and it sounds like epilepsy. Some of the symptoms resemble epilepsy, but, but Mark makes clear, and so do the other Gospels that record this event, that this boy is not merely suffering from some kind of physical ailment. He's, he's being oppressed by an evil spirit, by a demon. And this father, he, he must have heard about Jesus' power over demons, and so he explains how he, brought, he tried to bring his son to Jesus, but of course Jesus was gone. He was up on the mountain. And so the father asked the other disciples to, to cast out this demon, and notice what he says at the end of verse 18. He says, they were not able. They were not able. And that translation's a little too diplomatic. It's more literally, they were not strong enough. In this power struggle with evil, the disciples proved to be too weak. And at this point, um, Jesus, maybe a little surprisingly to us, he, he responds like an Old Testament prophet. What he says in, in verse 18, it sounds like something Moses would say, or, or Isaiah, he says there, verse 18, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? There's, there's a note of frustration there. You know, the problem Jesus says here, the problem according to Jesus, is a, is a problem of faithlessness, a problem of, of unbelief, a, a failure to trust in God's power and, and his deliverance. And Jesus talks about this faithless generation. Who, who is he calling faithless here? Is it the, the crowd? Uh, maybe the scribes? The disciples? Um, it's not exactly clear, but at the very least, he's talking about his own disciples. Um, this episode begins here with their failure, and then at the end, uh, they're asking Jesus, why did we fail? And so Jesus' own disciples here in this episode, they need to learn about faith. They need to learn about what it means to follow Jesus. So the episode begins this first scene, uh, faithless failure. And now the second scene, beginning in verse 20, it shifts attention to the Father, to this Father's wobbly faith. And Jesus asks for the boy to be brought to him. And then in verse 20, we read that the, the evil spirit, it, it sees Jesus, it convulses the boy. And, and so again, picture the scene. This, this poor boy is just sprawled out on the ground, suffering. And his father's standing there watching, probably with tears in his eyes. He's helpless to do anything about the situation. He's, he's waiting for Jesus to do something. And, and Jesus doesn't actually jump into action yet. Instead, he, he turns to the father and he asks a question in verse 21. How long has this been happening to him? And the father, you know, he explains, well, this has been going on since he was a little child. Now, we don't know how old the boy is at this point. Um, he's still a boy, but obviously he's been suffering for some time, probably years. 
at this point. And, and the Father goes on, verse 22, that says the Spirit has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. And no doubt this boy's body was, was disfigured with the scars from burns. And, you know, you think about this father. I mean, he must have lived in constant fear. Um, always wondering whether the next time will be the, the final time. You know, with the demon attack when he wasn't there to rescue his son. Um, when he wasn't there to pull him from the water, to pull him away from the flames. Um, some of you probably can resonate with how this father felt. Your, your children have suffered, maybe from um, a disease, maybe from the consequences of their own uh, bad choices. And you've had to watch the destruction. You, you know the fear. You know that, that sense of just helplessness. You wish you could jump in and be the hero and fix it all, but you can't. Um, when our youngest child was about two weeks old, the doctors found a hole in his heart. And he was um, losing weight. He was declining. And, and Stephanie and I weren't sure what it all would mean for him. And, and we were at Children's Hospital and at one point, just a, a whole uh, crowd of doctors and surgeons and nurses rushed into the room and they took our son and they're preparing him for surgery. And, and it's very chaotic and we didn't really understand all that was going on. We're just kind of off in the corner watching this scene unfold, um, realizing we can't do anything for him. And uh, just, it was scary, that sense of helplessness. Now, I've shared this story before and forgot to share that everything worked out. So our, our son is a, a healthy eight-year-old. He's sitting there in the back this morning. But, but watching your children suffer, is, is gotta, it's got to be one of the most painful experiences for, for a parent. To, to be helpless to relieve that pain. And so this father comes to Jesus and, and he appeals to Jesus. Verse 22, he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. And you notice there, it's, it's not just the boy suffering, the father as well. Help us. Um, now, this man seems to have some sense that Jesus is willing to help. I mean, he, he brought his son. He brought his son to Jesus. But you notice in his question, he's not quite sure that Jesus is able to help. Um, he, he believes Jesus would like to help, desires to help, but is he able? He says, if you can do anything. And, you know, you, you think about what's happened so far for this man. He, he brought his son, tried to bring his son to Jesus, didn't find Jesus, so he went with the B team, the disciples. And the disciples couldn't rescue his son, and now Jesus is here, and the demon's still attacking his son, and, and Jesus isn't doing anything. He's just asking questions. And maybe this man is starting to fear that, that Jesus simply can't help. This is too big. It's too much for Jesus to handle. And, and you might know how that feels, right? You might, sometimes our circumstances are just screaming at us, bigger, too strong. Uh, more than Jesus has, more than Jesus, stronger than Jesus. And, and this man, he's, he's, he's distraught. And you look at Jesus' response in verse 23 to this man. Um, he issues both a, a challenge and an invitation. Uh, the challenge, he repeats the man's own words back to him, if you can, and I, and I think we need to hear a bit of um, 
surprise here in Jesus' voice. If you can, in other words, don't you know who I am? I mean, of course I can help. And then the the invitation, all things are possible for one who believes. It's this invitation, the challenge to rethink his understanding of Jesus in an invitation to believe or to trust Jesus. Now, we hear statements like, all things are possible for one who believes, and, and we, we think, oh, well, that's an affirmation of the power of positive thinking. You know, just, just believe and nothing will stand in your way. But this, this Jewish father steeped in Israel's scriptures hears a reminder of God's limitless power, that nothing is too hard for him. And so Jesus is inviting him to trust that God's power, God's limitless power, is at work through Jesus. And the the man, he hears what Jesus is saying, and he responds in verse 24 with one of the classic confessions of faith in Scripture. Um, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, you, You know, you just... I love this confession. It's so honest, so vulnerable. He, he doesn't pretend to be a super saint. He, he, he does believe, he says, but, but he, he does trust Jesus, but he's also struggling to trust Jesus. He doubts, too. His, his faith is wobbly at times. And, and this is real-world faith. Uh, following Jesus doesn't mean you never doubt, doesn't mean you never have questions. Um, maybe you're sitting there thinking that you're the only one here today who has doubts or questions, and, and all these other people in the room, they've got it all together. They, their faith is rock solid, not wobbly. They, they never waver. Listen, it's not true. Real Christians have questions. They have doubts at times. Real faith doesn't always look pretty. You know, often it's wobbly like this man's faith. I, I believe, but I struggle. God, where are you? God, why, are you not, why haven't you fixed this situation yet? Um, uh, weaken my doubt, please, Lord. Strengthen my faith. And, and interestingly, Mark holds up this father here in the story as a, a model of faith. Uh, the disciples, you know, they, they might look the part better. They've been following Jesus. They know uh, just a, a little bit earlier they confessed that he is the Messiah, the Lord's Christ. Um, they might look like the believers in the story, but we're going to see at the end, Jesus, he, he puts his finger on their unbelief. They don't realize their need for deeper faith. But this man, he does. And he brings his wobbly faith to Jesus. He brings his doubts to Jesus. And he pleads with Jesus to help. And so this story, it it begins with the disciples' faithless failure. It it continues with the Father's wobbly faith. And now, scene three, Jesus' compassionate power. And and, um, this scene, verses 25 to 27, it, it moves very quickly. Uh, Jesus commands the demon to leave the boy. It does, but not before attacking him one final time and, and leaving this boy just com- it's what seems like comatose on the ground. And the crowd watching all this, they think he's dead. They think that was it. He's dead. But in verse 27, Jesus comes to the boy, takes him by the hand, 
and lifts him up off the ground, and the boy is alive, the boy is healthy, he's, he's free, maybe for the first time in a long time, from that oppressive, demonic power that had been tormenting him. And then in the final scene, uh, this whole episode comes full circle. It, it began with the disciples' failure, and it ends on that same note. Uh, a lesson about prayerless failure, verses 28 and 29. Um, Later that day, Mark tells us uh, the disciples are with Jesus alone in a home, um, probably in the evening, and they want to know, now that they've got Jesus to themselves, the crowd's not there, the father and his son aren't there, they want to know, well, what went wrong? Why did we fail? Why could we not cast it out, they ask in verse 28. Earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus commissioned them to to go out and cast out demons. And and they did. They went out and they were successful. And so now they don't understand what went wrong. I mean, just a little while earlier, this was all going very smoothly. And and here we, we fell flat on our faces. And Jesus explains, verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, why prayer? Well, Jesus doesn't mean there's, there's some formula the disciples forgot to say or some incantation they forgot to pray. Uh, prayer, at its most basic, is a plea for help. Prayer is, is one of the most fundamental expressions of, of humble dependence, complete dependence, on God's power and grace. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, look, you've fallen into the ditch of self-reliance. And the evidence, it's your prayerlessness. You know, maybe because of those earlier successes, they they were starting to trust in their own abilities, thinking that the, the power to deliver oppressed people from from evil resided in them. And they they were no longer relying on God's power at work through them, no longer coming to God in just that that basic posture of of humble dependence in prayer. And that's why they failed, Jesus said. So what's the point of this story? You know, what are we meant as followers of Christ to take away from it? Well, let me let me put it like this. Following Jesus looks like humble dependence, not proud self-reliance. Following Jesus looks like humble dependence, not proud self-reliance. See, the the disciples in this story, in their prayerlessness, uh, they model that that proud self-reliance. But the Father, this one who's got this shaky faith, uh, he demonstrates humble Dependence. He's, he's actually a foil in the story for the disciples' lack of faith and trust. And so following Jesus looks like humble dependence, the kind of faith that this, this father displays in the story. And two things stand out about his faith. He, he admits weakness and he prays desperate prayers. And so I, I just want to look at each of those as we think about humble dependence. He, he admits weakness and he prays Desperate prayers. Uh, first, admitting weakness. This, this father does not pretend to be more spiritually mature than he was. 
I mean, he doesn't come to Jesus with some kind of spiritual swagger. He, he comes uh, really distraught and at the end of his, his rope, and he says, look, I've got faith, I've also got unfaith. I've got faith, I've got unbelief. And he just admits his weakness. He didn't try to hide it from Jesus. Um, Esther Fleece, uh, she's a Christian author, and she wrote a book titled uh, No More Faking Fine, Ending the Pretending. And in the book, she writes about a common misunderstanding of the Christian life, something many Christians um, uh, wrongly assume about the Christian life. We, we think that a mature Christian is someone who doesn't have any weaknesses or doesn't have any that anyone can see. Um, a mature Christian, nothing phases them. They're always calm and collected, you know, always smiling, always energetic. They know what they believe. They never have doubts. Uh, they don't receive help from others. They give help to others. They've got it all together. And you might know that's not a realistic picture of the Christian life. But we think that's the image we have to convey, uh, both to others and even to God, um, what she calls faking fine. But faking fine is not the Christian way. In fact, that's, that's a little closer to the disciples in this story than it is to the Father's humble dependence. The, the life of humble dependence Christ invites us into looks like admitting weakness. Admitting it to God, admitting it to others. You see, the, the dynamic of the Christian life the way the Christian life works, it's a bit counterintuitive. It, it operates differently than we often assume. You see, we think in order to be strong, I need to feel strong and look strong. But it's actually the opposite. Just think about the reading earlier from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul, speaking of himself, says, When I am weak, I am strong. And we think, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? Uh, he's saying you have to be weak and know that you're weak to be strong. And if you think you're strong, uh, surprise, surprise, you're actually weak. And, and we might wonder, how, well, how can that be? How does being weak make you strong? Well, Paul says there in 2 Corinthians that, that God meets us in our weakness with his power. That Christ comes to us in our weakness with his grace. And when we admit that we're weak, when we uh, ad admit that we don't have what it takes, that left to ourselves we'll fall flat on our face, that's when we experience God's strength and power. That's why Paul says there that I'll, I'll just, if that's being the case, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I'm not going to hide them. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to fake fine. I'll, I'll boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so I want to ask you this morning, where in your life do you feel weak? Where in your life do you feel like, you know, I just, I can't fix this. It's, it's too big. I don't have that kind of power. I don't have that kind of wisdom. This thing requires a skill set I just don't have. And you know, we want to run from those kinds of circumstances. They're, they're uncomfortable um, people might see my weaknesses, but those places of weakness where you're conscious of just not being enough, not having the resources inside yourself, those places, 
That's where Christ wants to meet you with his power. That's where Christ wants you to trust him this morning to show up and to be the strong Savior that you need. You see, he he uses our weaknesses as platforms to show his glory and grace. That's why Paul says, "I'll, I'll boast of my weaknesses because it magnifies the grace of Jesus Christ. So where do you see weaknesses this morning in your life? Um, maybe it's maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your parenting, you know, maybe you didn't have good examples growing up and you know those formulas that are in all the books they don't work and you realize relationships are are hard and and now what? Or at work you're just you're overwhelmed by all the the demands and all the the pressure. Maybe it's a loved one who doesn't know Christ, and, and you just really struggle to talk with them about the gospel, and you feel so inadequate to, to bring the gospel to them. Or, or it could be patterns of sin in your life that you just can't seem to get past. You, you feel weak, whatever it is. The Lord wants you to admit weakness. Not to run from it, but to admit weakness. That's where He wants you to depend on His grace and power. And so don't, don't run from weakness. Lean into your weaknesses in faith, in dependence, in trust on God's grace to meet you there in that weakness. And so humble dependence, it, it looks like admitting weakness, but second, it also looks like desperate prayers. If you've been here for our discipleship hour over the past several weeks, we've been talking about prayer. And it's good for us to learn about prayer. It's good for us to learn how to pray uh, better, to look at some of the beautiful uh, prayers in Scripture and, and learn from them. It's, it's good for us to uh, work at, at cultivating a daily habit of prayer. But one thing we've said in the, in the class, and, and this is really important, Prayer is more than a religious duty. You see, prayer is not just one item among many on our religious to-do list. Uh, prayer is a lifeline. Prayer is about humble dependence. Prayer connects us to God, connects us to His help and to His grace. If we're seeking to follow Christ in humble dependence, uh, we're going to pray desperate prayers. Prayers that might not be pretty, or I could say will not be pretty, but um, they, they get the job done, you could say. They, they express humble trust in our Lord. Prayers like this, Father, help us. Have compassion on us. Help my unbelief. Uh, Zach Eswine talks about ugly prayers, you know, just... You, the tears and the, and the snot running from your nose. Lord, help. Or sometimes there's not even words, right? It's, it's just a groan like Paul talks about in Romans 8. You can't even articulate what it is, but the Lord understands. Desperate prayers. Praying like your life depends on it, because in reality it does. You know, uh, prayer's hard. We've talked, we talked about that in the class. Prayer's hard. And so prayerlessness is, is easy, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. Um, busyness, uh, distraction, uh, the mental exhaustion at the end of a long day, you know, all kinds of things. And many of them uh, 
legitimate issues, but, but there's often a deeper reason for our prayerlessness. We don't pray because we aren't desperate. See, we, we don't necessarily feel needy, or at least not needy enough to give up the, the self-reliance. Um, Paul Miller wrote a book on prayer called A Praying Life, and in it he talks about how as American Christians... Um, we struggle with prayer because we have all kinds of resources. You know, compared to many other parts of the world, we have money. We have access to technology. We have access to medicine. And, and because of our resources, we can be tempted to think that, that we're actually in control of our lives. Or at least that we have a, a high degree of, of control of our lives. And, and we have a solution to every problem. Uh, just with a swipe of the card or something like that. And Miller says, you know, because we can do life without God, in other words, because we think we can do life without God, prayer seems nice but unnecessary. In other words, what he's saying is, if you believe you're sufficient, if you believe you have the resources within you to handle anything life throws at you, um, prayer, just it, it just becomes a religious ritual. It's like, I know I should pray because I'm a Christian and Christians pray and Jesus told us to pray, but really, what's the point? I mean, I can take care of all these things myself. You know, the disciples in the story, they weren't desperate. They began to trust in themselves and they didn't pray. And part of following Jesus is learning to be desperate. It, you know, being a Christian doesn't necessarily get easier the longer you've done it. Um, in fact, the longer you've been a Christian, the harder it can feel. And, and that doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. That just means you're, you're seeing yourself more accurately than you did when you first started following Christ. And mature Christians know that they're weak. Mature Christians are desperate for the Lord's help. And so they pray desperate prayers. And so following Jesus, it looks like humble dependence, not, not proud self-reliance. It looks like admitting weakness. It looks like desperate prayers that you would never dare pray from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, but that God loves to hear. And, and we tend to pull back from that kind of life, right? That, that, just expression of, of weakness and dependence and, and not having all the answers. We, we tend to pull back from that. You know, we, we, we hide our weaknesses. We're, we're skilled at faking fine. Um, we, we don't want to let on that we're desperate. We, we want to look like it, we're put together. Um, we don't want other people to see. We don't want other, we don't want them to think. We want them to think we're strong, we're mature. We've got it all together. We don't want God to see our weaknesses. We're afraid He'll reject us. But, but friends, the, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, it frees us from that kind of fear. The Gospel frees us to be okay with humble dependence. You know, if, if I'm in Christ, if you're a person in Christ, uh, your identity doesn't rest on people seeing you as a strong person. Your identity isn't wrapped up in people thinking you've got it all together. In fact, the gospel says you don't have it all together. You could never be strong enough. You could never um, have what it takes. Because of our sin, we're, 
we're weaker and more messed up than we even realize. But the gospel also says that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me when I was weak, when I was sinful, when I was messed up. He left that heavenly uh, mountaintop of glory and came down into this broken world. And as we've seen in Romans, Jesus died for the weak. Jesus died for the sinful. Jesus died for the desperate. Those who don't measure up. Those who know they don't have what it takes. And the Gospel says that I I am loved and welcomed and accepted by God in Christ with all of my weakness and sin. And my identity is not that other people think I'm, I'm good enough, strong enough, and have my act together. My identity is about belonging to a strong Savior. The, the thing that matters isn't the, the quality of my faith. It isn't even the quantity of my faith. It's the object of my faith. The, the thing that matters is the greatness of Jesus and His love and power and grace. You see, the Gospel says, by faith I belong to Him. And I can bring my weaknesses and doubts to him. He's not going to turn away from me. I mean, when that man said to Jesus, I believe, but I also have unbelief, Jesus didn't say, well, that's it, you messed it up, I'm moving on. He's not going to turn away from you when you bring your weaknesses and doubts to him. He's going to receive you and welcome you and strengthen you with his grace. So humble dependence, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus in the valley. Humble dependence, admitting weakness, praying desperate prayers, relying on Jesus' power and grace. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, uh, we pray that you would help us to be a, a people of simple trust and faith. Do you help us not to pretend to be something we're not? Would you help us to be okay with admitting weakness, knowing that you meet us there, that the glory of your grace shines so brightly there in our weakness when you meet us with your strength and your love and your care and your power? Father, would you display through us the the strength of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.